How wonderful it is to be in the house of the Lord today as we celebrate the goodness of God and the wonder of our King and the grace of our Lord is just poured out amongst his people. We welcome you today in the name of our Lord Jesus the Christ. How about our worship team today, huh? Amen. Amen. And listen, I, I want to say this, and, uh, uh, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. These folks have only had a few rehearsals. Can you believe that? Amen. Every week it's a different band, and the band comes together, and the worship team comes together, and God gets the glory. That's what we want. Amen. Praise God. Amen. God, that's right. Give God praise for it. Wow. I'm telling you, and I, I, I almost shudder to think what it's going to be like when we really hit that rhythm for worship in this place. You're not going to be able to keep the roof on in here. I'm telling you, that's right. Amen. Amen. The praise of the Lord will go forth in this place. Amen. Would you join me for a word of prayer as we go into the word today? Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you've given to us. We thank you that you have loved us with such a great and everlasting love that we cannot even imagine with our natural mind, but we know that you have loved us, uh, Father, with all that you have, and you gave us Jesus as evidence of that love to die for our sins. Father, we pray as we go into the word right now that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, we give you praise. Let your word go forth and let us hear what the Spirit says to the church today. God, if there are any here today that have not received your son Jesus as Savior, we pray that the gospel will be made clear, that, Father, they would come knowing that you are God and there is no other. This we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue today in our series uh, on the Nehemiah Perspective. And today we want to talk about moving from distress to determination. Moving from distress to determination. Now the word comes to us from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And it reads as follows. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. We're going to talk again today about moving from distress to determination. In our previous discussions, we viewed this man, Nehemiah, as he received distressing news about his homeland. We talked about his 
reaction. We talked about how he was in a, how his homeland was in a state of disrepair. And he got the news and the people in his homeland were in a state of despair. The city of Jerusalem and her inhabitants were vulnerable to their enemies. And they were living as captives of an empire with a completely different set of values than their own. They had come from a, a, a people who were fostered and shaped by a relationship with the Almighty God. And now they were captive to people who didn't even worship the same God. The Persian Empire, a polytheistic society who believed that their king was also a God. And so these were the people who were, who were enslaving them, who had put them into bondage. Now, this reality, along with the deep concern that Nehemiah has for the condition of the people who live within that reality of captivity on a daily basis, produces a sort of distress in Nehemiah's spirit. The effect of the news from home shows up on the face of Nehemiah. And some of us, you know, we can identify with this because when we get bad news, usually we have some type of facial reaction. Amen? Usually when we hear bad news, it's like, oh, no. Some type of visceral uh, uh, visual reaction to bad news. And, And this is what's happening to Nehemiah. He cares so deeply that he cannot hide his feelings. There are those of us who, like Nehemiah, have great concern and care about the people of our community, who live daily within the bondage of sin, but not only sin. Some live in the bondage of an entrenched poverty, And the reality of living in crisis every day. And if you don't know what it's like to live in crisis every day. Imagine for a moment that every morning when you get up, you're wondering what is it that I need to do today so that my family can have something to eat. Things we take for granted. We go to our refrigerators, open the door and we've got choices. Amen. Some of us in here have so many choices. We stand there with the door open, just can't decide. What am I going to eat? Imagine what it would be like if the only thing your refrigerator was doing was keeping air cold. That's crisis living. And so here Nehemiah is dealing with with these folks who who by their their, their their own circumstance sometimes, but sometimes by the circumstances of others, have to live in this bondage. Let us not forget that, yes, there are many who by their own choices have created this bondage in their life, but there are also many, many who received 
the burden of this type of crisis due to the actions of other people. There are children who didn't ask to be born to drug addicted parents. There are children that go here every day uh, that, that walk up and down our streets who didn't ask to be left in circumstances where their fathers have abandoned them. Every day in this building, I walk past that prayer wall and I look at a little note that a child puts up. And it says, I'm praying, God, that I would see my daddy because I've never met him every day. And I'm going to keep saying that and I'm going to keep bringing it before you because I wanted you to know that's why we do ministry. Somebody ought to give God some praise. That's why we serve. So many in our world today live in this distressed circumstance. And how do we define what it is to live distressed? How do we define this? The word distress means great pain, anxiety, or sorrow, acute physical or mental suffering, affliction, trouble. Some of us in here are far too well acquainted with some of those words. We've been in distress circumstances. And if it hadn't been you, all I got to say is keep living. Amen. Amen. Trouble is a reality of life. And so, but what, what, what may be worse is that far too many living today in this distress condition are not aware of any way out of their circumstances. They live day to day with no visible means before them of how do I get out of this circumstance. Every day seems like Groundhog Day. Remember, you see, remember that movie with Bill Murray? And some of y'all know that, don't you? Every day woke up, it was the same thing, repeating over and over again. There are people every day that live. Every day is just like yesterday and you hope that it's not worse. And so some of them, even today, made it to the doors of this church house, but were not able to find any relief because in some cases, the people of God are unprepared to provide the answer to this circumstance. Now, now where, do, where do we get that from? Remember when, when, when there was a man whose son was possessed by a demon in, in scripture and, and, and when Jesus uh, uh, was there and or Jesus was not there, they, the man brought his son to the Lord's disciples. And they tried to do whatever it is they tried to do. And when Jesus shows up, the man says, I brought him to your disciples and they could do him no good. Think about how many people have come to the house of God looking for a way to get out of the circumstances they're in. And instead of being prepared to minister to people, we are too caught up in our own stuff. We're more worried about ourselves. 
Christianity is not a self-religion. It's not a self-faith. By the very nature of how Christianity came to be, there's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ teaching us that we too ought to give our lives for other people. Look at somebody and ask them, who are you going to the cross for? Who are you going? Go on, ask them like you mean it. Who are you going to the cross for? <laughs> That's right. Who are you willing to sacrifice yourself for? And so, and so when we look at this, we look at this. We, when, when people come to the house of the Lord, we try to manage their pain. Amen. We tell them who to blame. We get them all upset. And then we sing, shout, and dance them right out the door. Back toward the situation that put them in bondage in the first place. Ought to have a witness there. And it's been said that. That, that, and I want you to understand, it's been said that this kind of stress living is the number one cause of many physical ailments within the human body. Stress is a significant factor in heart disease, asthma, obesity. It's a significant factor in diabetes, headaches, depression, anxiety, worry, gastrointestinal problems, accelerated aging, and yes, even premature death. Because you live in a distressed circumstance. The people in Jerusalem lived in a community under siege. And just knowing of their suffering affected the disposition of Nehemiah. It is safe to say that even though he fasted and prayed in chapter 1, he did not remain unmotivated and unmoved by the pain of his people. Nehemiah could not ignore the circumstances of his homeland. He could not ignore that situation. Yet in this text, when we see the reaction of Nehemiah, we are once again confronted by a man with a unique perspective on life. One who, though affected by the trouble of his people, does not choose to languish in the distress that their trouble causes him, but moves on with a strong determination to bring change to Jerusalem and her people. Nehemiah essentially, my brothers and sisters, travels from distress to determination. But how does he do it? How does he go from having a face affected with sadness to, to being ready to fulfill the task, being determined to fulfill the task of bringing change to a community? How does he make that journey? And what does that mean for those of us who are distressed by the, the condition of our cities and neighborhoods and more importantly, the people who live within them in need of the delivering message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we do it? How do we move from a state of just being upset about what's going on to actually being ready to be used by God to bring change in people's lives? In reading how Nehemiah handled the distress in his own spirit, moving to determination for change, 
we see a means by which we can do the same, both on a personal and a corporate level. Now, I want you to understand, this applies to you personally as well. How do you get out of distress and move towards being determined? There are three elements that reveal the move from distress to determination. I want to drop those in your spirit and we'll be done. Look at this. The first thing you have to do to move from distress to determination is you have to know why you are distressed. You have to know why you are distressed. Now, that sounds easy, but listen. In the, the Bible says here, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad, watch this now, in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. It is clear that Nehemiah went about his task of cupbearer with a different disposition than he normally would have on this particular day. The king asked him about his facial expression. And then the king perceptively remarks that the problem is a sadness of heart. His face was so uncommonly distressed that the king said, I know you're not sick. I know you're not sick. His distress was evident in his face to the point that he looked like he was sick. But the king said he knew he wasn't sick. Now, the king, because he knew Nehemiah, also knew that he was not sick because here's the thing. The cupbearer would never come into the presence of the king with a physical ailment. You would never have the sniffles (laughs) and go into the presence of the king. You would never be sneezing and go into the presence of the king. You would never be coughing and go into the presence of the king. You could lose not just your job, (laughs) but your head. So he would never go into the presence of the king sick. The king knew then that because I know Nehemiah and I know how he is, I know he would never go come into my presence sick. So the problem must be deeper than a physical problem. The problem was deeper and the king knew that. Now, for those of us who feel distress for the circumstance of others or even in the processing of our own personal distress, I want you to know people can see our hurt. Amen? Now, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't even have to be a Christian to recognize the hurt of other people. There are people that are outside of the body of Christ that can see the pain on our faces. And I always say this about Christians. We are some folks that every now and then we just get beside ourselves with, with, with the pain of life. What I mean by that? You go to work, somebody asks you, how are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm just barely making it. I'm just, I'm just barely getting by. I, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. How is it that we are the saddest folks around? We ought to be the people that have the most joy. And when you see us at work, oh, 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 this is bad. 
There's no joy about us. Even when we come into the house of the Lord. Amen. The Bible says, enter into his courts with thanksgiving and into his presence with praise. And we walk into the house of the Lord. So here's the thing. We ought to be joyful. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah had this, this look on his face that the king knew was a deep hurt in his life. Nehemiah became afraid because he knew that it was a personal affront to the king to bring sadness in his presence. Here is a great difference between King Artaxerxes and the king of the universe. The God of heaven. Our God receives us in his presence. Amen, somebody. Even when our hearts are heavy with the burdens of this world. Aren't you glad that you serve a God that would allow you to come into his presence even when your heart is heavy, when your face is sad, when you're going through difficulty, you can still lift up your head to the God of heaven and be lifted up your everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. But Nehemiah knew that before the Persian king, he could be killed for such a thing. So he became afraid. But then something happens to Nehemiah. A burst of boldness leaps from his spirit to the ears of the king. Nehemiah boldly tells the king why he has a sad heart. He says, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city... The place of my father's grave lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah knew the exact cause of his distress. And if you're going to move from from distress to determination, you have to know exactly what is causing your distress. He didn't have to fumble for his words. And in fact, he turned the impetus onto the king by answering his question with a question. Why is your face sad? Why shouldn't it be sad? When I think about the distress that my ancestors are in, when I think about the homeland and what is going on in Jerusalem, my face should be sad. The graves where my ancestors are buried are all torn apart. And he knew, he knew what the problem was. If you came here today distressed, you ought to be at least be able To honestly know why you feel that way. Some of us have lived with distress like it's a roommate or a family member that moves in and won't ever leave. Amen. We live with distress so long we've gotten comfortable in living with distress. We've gotten used to living with distress. And we think that is how God would have us to live. One of the problems with living in a distressed situation is that you get kind of a Stockholm syndrome. 
some of you may have heard of the Stockholm Syndrome, where if someone is taken captive, after a while they begin to identify with their captors. They begin to agree with the with their captors, and that's what happens to people who live in long-term distress situations. They begin to think that this is how I'm supposed to live. I'm supposed to be burdened all the time. Communities that are in distress begin to think that this is how our community is supposed to look. We're supposed to have abandoned buildings all over the place. We're supposed to have potholes in the street so big that you can live a small family, put a small family in them. (laughs) And we think that's what's supposed to happen. But that is not what's supposed to happen. It's a result of living long-term in distress. So to move out of distressed situation towards a determined state, you must know why you are distressed so that you can boldly lay it before the king. Now, some of us listen to that song, you know, that uh, Tamil man sings that song, Take Me to the King. Some of y'all listen to it. And I, I know you're not really listening to the words because there's some questionable theology in there, but I, that's for another time. <laughs> But it sounds good, you know. And we say, take me to the king. I don't have much to bring. Here's the thing. Are you even ready to go to the king? Do you even know why you ought to go to the king? Do you even know why you are distressed? Or are you in a situation where where distress has been so much a part of your life, you forgot even what happened to put you in this situation? Why are you distressed? Are you even prepared to go? To know the source of your distress requires emotional, intellectual, and spiritual honesty. Nehemiah was willing to be honest, even though he knew it could upset the king. So ask yourself the question today, if you're living in distress, why are you distressed? What is the real reason for your distress? Now, I'm not talking about blaming it on your mama or your daddy or the government or anything else. I'm talking about why are you distressed? What is the real reason? Be honest with yourself. The second way, second thing we need to do to move from distress to determination is that you need to know what you want and what you need. If you look at verses four and five in this, in this, in this text, the king says, Nehemiah says, then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Look at that. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I I may rebuild it. As what seems to be a consistent and custom uh, habit for Nehemiah, Nehemiah begins to pray before he speaks. In answer to the king's question of what he really wants, Nehemiah clearly believes he needs to approach God for direction in answering the king. He says a very small phrase there. So I prayed to the God of heaven. How many times have you begun to answer what is going on in your life or in your community and you failed to pray? To the God of heaven. He knows he needs to talk to God. If we seek to move away from a distressed state of living towards a determined mind. 
a determined mind that is ready for change, then we must get our order right. We need direction from God to move out of distress. And as we had previously previously discussed last week, whom are you consulting? Who is advising you? Who is the person that is giving, that is speaking into your life? Some of us have people instead of God that we take advice from. Amen. We have people that we're talking to. You got a girlfriend that you call. Girl, what am I going to do with this man? He's driving me nuts. And she doesn't even have a husband. How crazy is that? I'm going to get advice from my single friend about marriage. You know, we guys, you know, you go out there and talk to the guy on the street. He out there hanging out. Man, my wife driving me nuts. Man, if that was me, I wouldn't be taking that stuff. Really? That could be why you out here on the street. I'm just saying. <laughs> Don't complain about being henpecked. Be thankful you got a hen that want to peck you. I'm just saying it. <laughs> I would have thought I got a few more amens from the ladies on that one. I'm just <laughs> so so we, we got to realize who are you going to for your advice to break this bondage of distress in your life. And after Nehemiah received his direction from God, he was ready to answer the king. He knew what he wanted. And he knew what he needed from the king. In other words, my brothers and sisters, Nehemiah had a plan. He asked to go to Judah in order to rebuild the city of his ancestors. Now, notice the mention of graves. That was not by chance. In the Persian culture, it was very important that the graves of the ancestors were a sacred place to be attended to. Nehemiah knew that. And he says to the king, I have to go to the place of the graves of my ancestors. And that was able to move the heart of King Artaxerxes because he understood That a person in in, in their culture would go and visit the graves of their ancestors. Nehemiah knew that he needed to rebuild the city based on God's calling. He was very clear as to his calling. I'm going back to build the city. I know what I want. I know what I need. I have a plan. If you're going to move from distress to determination in your life, you need a plan. If we are going to help people in moving from distress to determination, we must follow a clear plan. How long have you lingered in distress? Because you have no real plan for ever getting out. You've accepted that distress is how you're supposed to live. You've accepted the fact that it's just going to be like this. And I'm telling you that that's not God's calling for your life. God has offered a way out of the distress and it's called the gospel. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave his life on Calvary so that you would not have to live in a distressed state. See, let me help you understand. Too many people are still trying to be happy. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's something for, come on, throw your hand up real fast. If you, you want them folks that, that oh, I, I, I just want to be happy. Everything in life is, I want to be happy. Let me tell you something. God didn't come and give his son so you can have happiness. Oh, you didn't know that, did you? He came so you could have joy. Watch this now. There's a difference between joy and happiness. When you don't have any money, it's hard to be happy. Do I have a witness? When the only thing in your pocket is the lint that came off the pockets, it's hard to be happy. Happiness is a state of mind that's dependent on your circumstances. But joy is something other than that. Joy is a state of mind that's independent of your circumstances. I don't have a dime, but I can still have joy. I don't have to have friends, but I can still have joy. I can be in trouble, but I can still have joy. So Jesus says, my joy I give to you, not my happiness. Whatever state you're in, you can have joy. That's what God wants for you. He's given you the gospel to free you from the distress of a soul in the bondage of sin. That's the plan to bring you out, to bring a people out of distress. We must have the same plan that God provides. The truth of the gospel sets men and women free. And the Bible says, and whom the son sets free is free indeed. Oh, what a change we would see if the church, that is God's people, would fall in love with the gospel again. What would happen if we fell in love with telling men and women everywhere about the Lord Jesus Christ? What would happen if the church fell in love again with the gospel? I, I I don't want us to be in love with the church. Too many of us are in love with the church. We're in love with, oh, the church, the ideal of the church. God wants us to be in love with the gospel, to be in love with him, to be in love with his same purpose that he has for humanity so that everybody would know about Jesus. He didn't bring you to this place today so that you could leave here and tell people about Bethel. If you tell people about Jesus, you'll never have to worry about filling this place up. Oh, come on. Give God some praise here. Watch this. Watch this now. We must stop trying to apply carnal solutions to spiritual problems. Nehemiah knew that the rebuilding of the city of his ancestors would have a profound effect on their spiritual life because they would see the glory of God at work. Here's something that you didn't know. Nehemiah was so bold that he had the audacity to believe that he could go back and rebuild while they were still in captivity. Did you get that? He didn't say to the king, let me go back here and free my people. He didn't say, let me lead a rebellion against the Persian empire. He believed so much in the power of God to change lives that while they were still in captivity, that he could rebuild that city. 
that he could rebuild that community, that he could rebuild the lives of the people that lived there by the power of God. Now, that's no small task. See, when we talk about what the Lord has called us to do as believers in our cities, there's going to be an air of captivity. But within that air of captivity, there's a rumbling going on. Do I have a witness? There's some disturbance going on because what's happening is God is calling together a people that from the inside of captivity is beginning to destroy, destroy um, captivity, begin to tear down those strongholds and break those yokes with the power of God. That's what we're called to do. And only God can rebuild in the midst of captivity. The last thing that you need to know in order to move from distress to determination. In verse 6, you've got to know your destination and your duration. You've got to know your destination and you've got to know your duration. Watch this now. In verse 6 we read, And the king said to me, the queen was sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? How long? And when will you return? Almost says, sound like the same question repeated. How long are you going to be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Watch this now. Notice that Nehemiah provided the king with two important elements of his plan. The destination, which was going back to Judah. I'm going to Judah. And the duration of his stay. Whatever time Nehemiah gave him. The Bible doesn't tell us how long he said. I'm going to be gone a year. I'm going to be gone two years. I'm going to be gone three years. Don't know. But he gave the king a duration for his destination. In order to move from distress to determination, Nehemiah knew where he was going. And how long he would be gone. He had some clear parameters for his success. If you are in distress, perhaps you remain there because you do not have a plan that includes clear parameters for success. Perhaps you are drifting constantly between ideas. Everything you hear about becomes something you want to do. You watching late night TV. You can go to this school and become this. That's what I want to do. (laughs) Tomorrow night, another commercial. (laughs) You can become this. Oh, I want to be an auto mechanic. Oh, I want to be a nurse. Oh, I want to. And you and you're constantly drifting between ideas and you you don't have a clear plan for success. How about praying to God and seeing what God's will is for your life? How about really laboring in prayer and saying, Lord, what is it that you want to do with this life that I'm going to offer up to you? Yeah, that's that's something that one one person gets it back there. That's right. You got to have a plan. You have to have a plan. Your friend gets a job. All of a sudden you want the same job. Maybe that's the problem. Your distress is caused by your inability to set goals. Nehemiah was very clear. I know where I'm going to Judah and I know how long I'm going to be there. I have some parameters for my success. How can you get to the point 
of determination that will bring change in your life without having a destination. You just get up and start walking and you don't know where you're going. You just get up and just start moving and you have no plan. And that is where failure happens all too often. We don't have a plan. One of the things in even planting this campus, we realized that we can't come here without a plan. And even in planning, we leave open the possibility that God will lead us in our best efforts. God will say, but wait a minute, you need to do this first. And that's okay, but at least you ought to have some kind of plan. (laughs) There are people that are the happy-go-lucky folks. That's what we call them. They're like the grasshopper in that story of Aesop's fable, where all they do in life is just hop through life in the summertime of life. They're hopping around, having fun. Every day is a party. Every night is a party. Every day is fun. You get up in the morning thinking, how much fun am I going to have today? Well, there are other people that are like the ant. And the ant is one that while the weather's good, while the weather's warm, the ant is constantly gathering. Very rarely in the middle of the winter do you see ants in your home. You don't see ants outside your door. They're deep underground enjoying life. Because while it was warm, they gathered enough for the time that the weather would change. And I'm here to tell you today that there are many of us who are like that grasshopper. And one day it's going to get cold. One day you'll realize I'm grown and I don't have an education. One day you will realize that that I'm older now and I can't even take care of the most basic necessities of life. And you'll be like that grasshopper in that story. What did he do? He was knocking on the ant's door. And he's saying, can you let me in? I'm out here. I'm freezing. I'm cold. I don't have. You need a plan for your life to move from distress to determination. And guess what? It takes hard work. (laughs) If you're going to go back to school, go back to school. Give yourself a deadline to get that degree. And stop making excuses about how hard it is. Where did you get the idea that life was easy? Who put that in your mind? Something on TV? (laughs) You looked at a television program, oh man, life is easy. Life is not easy. Life is hard. And it's made harder When you determine that you're going to do what you want instead of what God has for you to do. (laughs) Don't be one of those indefinite folks. You know, they never seem to have a duration for their accomplishment. You know, every time you see them, uh, what you doing? I'm still in school. I haven't seen you in five years. You still in school? (laughs) 
I'm taking, I'm taking a class. You've been taking a class for 10 years. Now, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. If, if you're progressing, praise God. But at some point, you ought to get enough determination in your spirit to say that I'm going to complete this. Now, I'll give you a personal experience. It happened for me in my 40s. I said, I, said, I need to, to finish my education. And my wife would tell you, I, I, I became determined. And I was so determined that I was up at 6 o'clock in the morning doing homework and writing papers and driving down to spill the beans in the neighborhood where I live and going there and sitting there from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. to the time where I said, man, if I sit any longer, they're going to put me out. I was doing homework. I was writing my papers. I was going to school online because I was determined that I was going to get a college degree. You have to have determined determination. I was I was distressed about not having one. And I realized the only way to move from distress to determination is I had to have a plan. I told my wife, I said, in two years. I'm going to finish this degree. And by the grace of God, I was able to get it because of a plan. Nehemiah told the king where he was going and how long he was going to be there. If we're going to help change people from a state of distress to a state of determination, we must know where we're going and set some duration. We should challenge ourselves that we're going to share the gospel with X number of people a year. X number of people in two years and so forth. This we can do if we believe God. We can tell the story of Jesus and the grace that he offers. We have to have a plan that says we're not just here to manage your pain, but we're here to help you find your purpose. Would you pray with me today? Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for this word. I thank you that you've given us a word that challenges us to go from a point of distress, a point of sadness of heart, to being determined to bring change in our lives and the lives of those who are around us. And we know that it is by the gospel that we shall see men and women's lives change that that bondage of sin will be broken. And that even yet, in our distressed communities, we can see the light of the gospel shining through the darkness. And we're so grateful that, God, you've given us this word. In Jesus' name, amen.